Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome to a special live recorded episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor at EAA for print and digital content and publications. We're not at our usual table, so way down at the end is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Program Coordinator, and I feel weird being this far from <laughs> Well, you'll get over it. Uh, next to him... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. And we're sitting here in the AirVenture Welcome Center in, at the, uh, in the thick of AirVenture Oshkosh 2018 with, with three uh, remarkable guests uh, that we're extremely lucky to have. Chris, uh, can you introduce the guests for us, please? Absolutely. I'm very honored to be on stage uh, with these three gentlemen. We have one more that's joining us tonight, and we also need to remember the two who are not able to join us because they've gone west. But with us today, uh, if you'll stand when I just call your name here, but we're honored to have uh, to my, my closest right here, Mike Clover, aircraft co-pilot, uh, Mike Bouchard, aircraft crew chief, Ron Kraft, aircraft uh, assistant crew chief. I'll make sure I get these right. Thank you. And uh, guys, can you tell us a little bit about, this is your first time to Oshkosh, what do you think of this so far? This is just simply outstanding. Our host, EAA, has just been overwhelmingly generous to us. You know, thank you very kindly. Thank you, Oshkosh. What a wonderful location. Wonderful. Chris Henry has gone way beyond what I expected, and this whole event is... I didn't have the capacity to come up with a, an imagination of how expansive and vast this whole operation is. I can't afford... I mean, I can't imagine how they put it all together. Well done, good job. Thank you very much. Uh, coming to Oshkosh, I've always heard about the air show here and um, it's, it's always been on my bucket list. And, and thanks to Chris and the, the entire committee here, the EAA, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for bringing us here. Um, it is something, I'm already making plans to come back next year. Uh, it's an excellent. honor to be here, thank you. Thanks to everybody. And you know, before we get too far down the road, I realized that, uh, that I made a mistake in the opener. So let's fix that real quick right now. Oh, what did you say? Oh. I, I'm looking right at him. I have to give a big thanks to our sponsor, GE Aviation. You see the signage? These guys are here. They've stepped up. And they're, they're one of the reasons that we are able to keep doing this. So big thanks to GE Aviation for doing that. My, my apologies for getting so excited there to get started. Thank you, Nick. Now, you three gentlemen are... We were part of a KC-135 tanker crew that was involved, uh, really, in an extraordinary mission. Uh, Chris, do you want to take the lead and, and step us through the details of, of what happened? Well, absolutely. Uh, first off, uh, we need to call out the fact that uh, uh, we don't kick butt without tanker gas. I think that's a famous <laughs> saying that we need to call out. I think the uh, real expression is slightly different. It rhymes. It is. It is. Right. It's a family-friendly show, enough. though, so I had to <laughs> clean it up. Um, but really, when you look out there and you see the tankers, those are the guys who, you know, they don't get a lot of the limelight. There's not a, a movie yet out there about tankers. Um, but yet, all those missions happen because those support aircraft are out there. And when we first started talking about wanting to put something together to honor the aircraft that do the mid-air refueling, um, one mission stood out special for us that we were reading about. And that was this, this 
amazing story of a crew who went above and beyond to save an F4. And we thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if somehow we could find those guys and uh, through the magic back wall of Facebook, uh, I was able to, to do that. Um, you know, Mike uh, Clover, could we start with you a little bit about walking us through the very beginning of this ordeal and how, what was your first notion that something out of the ordinary was happening? Well, when you transition and take your fighter aircraft from one pond, across the pond, from one of the states over to the UK, you go in formation. And our first indication was you know, we we're well out over the ocean and we start hearing from there as a head dancer, which is in charge of basically multiple formations of fighters as they're progressing along the track over the pond. They said, well, one of our aircraft has a problem. They got a big problem. So they went ahead and they directed the fighters to turn back and start heading back towards Gander. Well, fighters, when they, they always fly in pairs. So you got two airplanes, they're leaving the basic formation to head back towards Gander. They start heading back and all of a sudden you start hearing, well, the fighter has additional issues. They have a lot of thrust issues, so much so that they're starting to lose altitude. And oh, by the way, head dancer again breaks in there and says, okay, we're directing our tanker to go back and escort them. Try to catch them and escort them as best as possible. So we're about 500 miles outside of Gander and we're trying to catch these F4. And oh, guess what? We're at altitude and we're starting to catch them, trying to in a descent because the Air 4 can't maintain altitude. They're heading towards the ocean. You know, the ocean is not very friendly at that time of the year. And it, this is a September time frame and it's pretty cold. And guess what? Their probably chance of survival was pretty minimum at that best. So we were directed to go back and try to escort the, the airplanes back to Gander. And through a crew effort, and I, you know, I, I, I have my hats off to Strategic Air Command and SAC, as a, as a crew at that time, you worked together as, 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 well, as a team. And SAC had the wisdom of putting all the crew members you were called a hard crew. So you flew with the same individual day in and day out. You pulled alert with them, you did everything, trained with them. So you knew one another. You knew the weaknesses and you knew the strengths of each member. So that was a blessing that SAC had the foresight to do. And, and by the, uh, I don't know, by the grace of God, all of us were in the right place at the right time and we did our jobs. And that's why I want to emphasize here, we did our job. Our job is to help the, the fighter, the, the receiver. The tanker is secondary. The bomber and the fighter, they're number one, they're team one. And you can talk to the guys today who are out there flying the heavy airplanes now. We're second team, we know that, but we're proud of it. Guess what, those guys, NKAWTG, go nowhere without the tanker. So we went to go and escort the, uh, the receiver back to Gander. And it took a coordination, total crew coordination between pilot, navigator, co-pilot, and, and the boom operator to get the airplane back to a rendezvous with this stricken airplane, but then try to do something to save them from ditching into the Atlantic Ocean to get them back to ground. And that's what we did. That's a synopsis of it. And if I might, you know, let me just read what the citation reads to give you a better understanding. It says that the airplane, the F-4, was a descending F-4, and it was at extremely low airspeed. And in spite of the adverse flight control malfunction, of, and we were able to obtain an air refueling contact at about 2,000 feet above the ocean. So I'm sorry, we, could you repeat that altitude? That's uh, 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. That's not very feet. high. That's usually a traffic pattern type altitude. So and, we're pretty close to the ocean. Oh, by what, the way. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, what altitude do you, are you normally oh, refueling? Oh, we're up at uh, about flight level, I'll say two something, up in the three something. Because that's so 20, 30,000 feet is the normal altitude. 20, 000, now we're down at 2,000 feet above the Atlantic. Yeah. So that's that's a big significant difference. And oh, by the way, what's lost in the translation here is 
We have our maintainers on board the airplane, and we have passengers on the airplane. So there's a lot of dynamics that are going on, not just you know, outside the airplane, but inside the airplane that's, that's happening as this is all transpiring. And this is all real time. This is not like today's where you can go position, freeze, stop, talk about it in a, in a, in a simulator, because <laughs> guess what? You don't practice this. You really don't practice it. So again, you know, I, I thank uh, Mother SAC for having trained us well. You know, I, I, can't, I can't say and, and promote SAC as, as, as much as I do now. They, they really, really trained us well. And of course, uh, for anyone who may not know SAC, Strategic Air Command, peace is our profession. Peace is our profession. The mailed fist <laughs> with the lightning bolts. That's good stuff. There it is, right there. <laughs> for those just only listening. <laughs> I'm admiring another man's tattoo live right now. Again, with the hidden uh, nomenclature there is to forgive is not SAC policy either. Yeah. No, so if you do, and if you messed up, Mother SAC was going to take care of you. <laughs> but it, it was, a, it was a, a, a chase in order to rendezvous with the descending flight of F-4s. And then it really became a, a very intricate uh, give and take as far as the tanker trying to get ahead of the receivers and then slowly, you know, we used to turn back in. Okay, remember the fighter is going forward and we're just kind of slowing down. So we're kind of like backing in, I guess you could say. And then from that, we're waiting for the boom operator to make contact. And we do this three times. We get them, they're able to latch on for a while, and then immediately they fall off. We do it three times. And that's called a Bruce Force disconnect. Because on an air refueling tanker, what you have is the boom come down, which is nothing more like a big straw, and the receiver's got these little toggles that latch onto the boom. Well, we've got the capability inside the airplane to knock off certain, certain aspects of our systems where it turns into a manual boom latching where the receiver can latch on like mother. It's like, I'm hanging on to this for dear life, and that's really what they're doing. They're hanging on for dear life, and we're slowly pulling them up, slowly. And it took three times to get them up. And all while this is going on, luckily his other engine, which was you know, uh, starting to overheat, had enough opportunity to cool down, where the, the airport could finally maintain altitude. And in essence, we then escorted them into Gander. So can you take us through the uh, kind of the geometry of that, of that contact maneuver? Because when, with the F-4 stricken and not really able to produce thrust, you're, you're really their only option to speed up is to burn altitude, which means you need to descend as well. That must have been a very complicated maneuver. It is, and you know, I brought, you know, for after the interview here, you can come up and take a look. I brought the Dash 3, which is a very refueling manual, and we're supposed to be doing this at 300 knots. When we do a normal F4 refueling, we're at 300 knots, where we're well below 200 knots at this point. And as most aviators out there know, the slower you go, the airplane doesn't handle very well. It gets, it gets very sluggish and very sloppy. So we're trying to do this all the while. Guess what? He's thrust efficient. He's got one engine that's powering up his aircraft. So he's in an asymmetric position. So he can only do certain maneuvers. So we're doing this acrobatically above the ocean and all the while trying to maintain or latch on to them, maintain them in some type of contact, pull them up to an altitude of some sort and just get them to land. Get them to land. That was our goal. Just get them to land. So and I think there's a, there's a perception when you hear a story like this, not that there's many stories like this, but I think there's a sense that, that you were talking about sort of dragging an airplane. We, we really just mean, you know, you're connected and, and maybe he's got a fuel leak and you're just pumping fuel and replacing an engine and running. But he is physically latched on. When you're talking about pulling him up, you are, you are literally at this point towing an F4 to higher altitude. And this is what I want to bring out here is 
lost in all of this is, guess what? You talk about, there's no, no such thing as a coincidence. Our maintenance team on board, they had the foresight before we left Loring Air Force, Maine, to put a new boom on that airplane. What are the chances of that ever happening? We didn't know this was going to happen, but I'm going to turn it to Mike Richard. What had happened on that point that Mike just mentioned about getting a new boom? Uh, we were in the hangar a day or two before the, uh, the launch, and one of the senior NCOs from a different squadron came through and he asked me, where's your aircraft records? And I told him where they were and he went and looked at the 781K and all that stuff. And we have components on the aircraft that after so many hours of flight time or so many cycles or, or whatever, they have to be changed. They have to be removed, inspected. Uh, if everything's fine, good. If it's not, it has to be reconditioned back into FMC status. Anyway, long story short, he comes through, goes up, looks at the forms, comes back down the stairs, and uh, I, I said, uh, what's up? And he says, well, I just come to check to see how much time you get left on the boom, and uh, I think you get enough to do a 45-day trip to England. I said, you think? I said, if, if it's getting tight, if it's getting close, let's change the boom, because that way there, I can have a fresh boom to go to England. I don't want to go to England with a, a, a KC-135 having a, the name Loring painted on the tail and ended up running out of hours on a boom and having to sit strip alert or uh, being tasked to events where we're not flying. I'm going there to fly and I'm going to there to do a job. And he said, no, nah, I think you get enough time. And I said, hold that thought, I'll be right back. I scooted down to supervision. I went and talked to a guy with a handful of stripes on his sleeve. And I said, hey, listen, I don't want to go to England with a, a Loring tail that's going to get parked because we're getting tight on time. I'd like to get that boom changed. Can you help me out here? Let me make a call. We got a fresh boom. We got, a, we got our boom fork inspection done. And off we went. And it was only in the last few months when we reestablished contact that I told that to Doug Simmons, the boom operator who should be here shortly. And he never knew that. And he always thought to him, he told me that he always thought to himself, why did that boom not come off the aircraft? Because we abused that boom. This was not, this was extremely outside normal operations of what we did with the aircraft and the boom. And um, so enough on that. It, I, I'd like to give a little bit of background as to how this all come about. What we were doing was a reforger mission, correct, Mike? Yeah. We were bringing, we were bringing, uh, reforger is a Cold War era exercise. It was called, reforger was return of forces to Germany, reforger. And we were carrying, we were six KC-135s that come from different Air Force bases and we assembled at Pease Air Force Base. Along with that, we had two KC-10s. We all merged into Pease and awaited for the departure time the following day where we all flushed to carry 24 F4Es coming out of Seymour Johnson in one hop going across the Atlantic into Germany. The KC-10s took off first and they went down the coast towards Virginia and they picked up those, F, uh, those F4s and they refueled them incrementally as they came up the coast towards Nova Scotia. At that point, 
Those 24 F4s were divvied up amongst the six tankers. Four, four, four. Each tanker had four aircraft. And off we went, we headed east, headed towards England and Germany. We were gonna land in England. The F4s were gonna be picked up by other tankers coming out of England, I think it was, and brought into Germany. We get out off way beyond Nova Scotia, and we get that message that there's an F4, one of our chicks is in trouble. And, um, um, you know, I'll let Mike and Doug, tonight at the, uh, at the, at the theater in the woods, we'll, we'll have Doug here and he'll, he'll, he'll chill you. He'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up as to how this all transpired. But to give you a bit of perspective of the intensity of all of this, there was no screaming, there was no panic, there was no running around saying, oh my God, what are we gonna do? It was, a, it was a bunch of gears that were working together. This was like a good transmission, everything just worked to get the job done. When it was done, I remember Doug Simmons coming out of the boom pod. We were all wearing olive drab flight suits, Nomex flight suits. You see some of them walking around here. Doug Simmons come out of the boom pod and his flight suit was black. He was under intense pressure, mental, in that boom pod. He wasn't doing physically a lot of work. He wasn't doing reps of exercise or anything. But he sweated to the point that I've, I've, I've sweat. I've had my time in the heat. But when I saw him come out of the boom pod and his suit was black instead of olive drab, it, it stayed with me. And keep in mind, folks, the, uh, the boom pod is in the aft of the airplane. You know, the pilot, they have a co-pilot, we're up in the front of the airplane. So you can see, we're separated. All we've got is radio communication between us, internal to the airplane, and external to the receiver. You know, so you have all this going on at, at one time. And, you know, brute force, if you look at the old SAC manual on, on, a, on a brute force disconnect, you're supposed to stop air refueling. Knock it off, no more except for operational necessity. We deem this operational necessity to go ahead and continue on the airfield and, and try to do something. I'd like to just expand on that, the significance of having that fresh boom on there one more time. Um, I was thrown into this mission two weeks prior to because Mike's real uh, assistant crew chief had gotten injured. Um, so this ended up being my very first mission. And, and uh, so it... After experiencing our, the, the whole experience and, and seeing how everyone, like Mike was saying, did their jobs because the way we were trained, the way we practiced, the way we did our job, I didn't know at, when we landed that we didn't do this every day. <laughs> this I was not a normal day. We have the coolest damn job in the world. <laughs> I didn't know why more people didn't want to do what we were doing. but. Yeah, and then I learned later on that we should have been there. Uh, How old were you at that point? 23. 23. Yep. So you were young and invincible. I was bulletproof. <laughs> bulletproof. Um, so one thing that's coming to my mind, gentlemen, as you're talking through this, and you mentioned earlier that, that what I didn't realize, now that there's your tanker crew, but there are passengers aboard the airplane. So you've got a KC-135 full of people, and you're, when you're diving to 2,000 feet above the water, dragging this F-4, straining the boom, um, that whole, everybody on board that tanker is at risk 
to save the two guys in the F4. What's going through the crew's minds? Is anybody sitting there and raising the question, uh, are they worth it? Is anybody asking that question? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Our job as a tanker is to be the, re you know, we're out there for the receiver. That's our primary job. So we're going to do whatever it takes in order to meet the satis satisfy the receiver's requirement. And that was the receiver's requirement that I need help. And the alternative was to let him go. Are you going to let him go? We're no, not, not going to let him go. And, and Doug will tell you, he, he could literally see the pilot, the navigator, the Wizzo, and the F-4. They were already cinching down. They were getting ready to eject as we're trying to make contact with them. So they're already going through that mind and their mental process. Hey, I'm getting ready to ditch this thing. And oh, by the way, my chances of survival are probably going to be zipped. But uh, you know what? We're going to continue to press on as we get closer to, to Gander. I can remember when I was on headset, I was alternating my position back and forth between the boom pod where Doug was and up in the crew, I, uh, up in the cockpit. I, I, I was walking back and forth at times, but I was also keeping an eye on all the packs because the packs, I, the passengers, I wanted them to stay seated and I wanted them to stay buckled in because we're gonna get into, we, got, we shook that airplane. We did some buffeting, we, we shook that thing. Anyway, um, the passengers, I believe, sensed that this is not normal, and they were pretty cool about staying seated. They, they, normally, when we're crossing the Atlantic, you'll, you'll have the passengers get up and walk around, but uh, they knew that we were at work, and shut up, sit down, be quiet, stay put. You know, we got things to do, and it might so be blunt for me to say it that way, but... The seatbelt sign was definitely on, is what you're saying. The seatbelt sign was definitely yeah. on. So, um, so we, uh, we got to sit down last night and talk. Uh, uh, finally met Mike this morning. Uh, we actually haven't been together as a, as a team for 35 years. Uh, it's been 35 years this summer since this, uh, this event. But um, talking to Doug last night, the boom operator, he explained the, the first hookup. Um, and when we talk about the condition of the boom and the skill of the, the boom operator, when we, when he made, went to make the contact with the receiver in the F-4, you, he couldn't even see it. He couldn't even see the hole because the aircraft was at such an attitude. He used the tip of the boom to physically push the aircraft over to gain access to the, to the receptacle, bang, and nailed it first shot. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, it, and again, if we go back to, if we had a boom with, you know, maximum hours on it, um, we don't know the, the, the result we would have had at the end of the day. What was we, the, uh, sorry, what was, I was just going to ask, what was the slowest indicated airspeed that you saw during that maneuver? We're below 200 knots. What is a KC-130, what is an F-4 stall okay. at? Okay, I'm not sure what the, what the F-4, they, they're renowned for being referred to as a flying brick. So they're thrust efficient <laughs> to begin with. So they're probably, you know, far close to pattern altitude, probably at the speed at that time. But I was just checking the dash three. Yeah, air refueling speed for an F-4 at altitude is 315 knots. So we're at low 200 knots. So you can imagine, you know, the, the tanker doesn't have all these nifty little ailerons and stuff on it. It's got... You know, tabs, control tabs. So as you deflect and turn the yoke, you're, you're, you're throwing up a control tab out on the wing, which causes the wing to, to pitch. So that's what's really in bank. That's really what's happening. And the F-4 is going through the same thing. 
He doesn't have any control. He's lost an engine. He's thrust a fish. He's, he's flying at an angle. So he doesn't have a lot of maneuverability either. And really, like I say, by the grace of God, we were able to latch on and maintain it. You know, several took several contacts, but at least to drag him up to an altitude where his engine, his good engine, could, could cool down a little bit and at least get him at altitude, and he stayed at a certain altitude. We got above around uh, 5,000 feet, close to 6,000 feet, all the way into Gander, you know? So, I tell you what, we landed, and, and as Mike pointed out, it was his first flight. Well, guess what? I'm a brand new co-pilot at the SAC. And so, how old were you at the time? I'm sorry? How old were you at the time? I was 28. You know, basically fresh out of uh, uh, Castle, which was a uh, combat crew training school for me, reporting to Loring Air Force Base on a two co-pilot tanker crew, guess what, I got the good straw because I got to go overseas. Because they said, hey Clover, you could build up some flying time. You go over there and experience. Did I get an experience on this first <laughs> deployment? How many thousands of hours did you log on this one mission? I don't know how many thousands of hours, but it's a lot of sweat. You know, I can check the book. I, I actually brought a, a picture, a photocopy of, uh, you know, every, every pilot keeps a little log book. I think it was like a four point whatever hours to get us back to Gander. And then I forget when it's back into the uh, overseas. Usually it's about five to six hour flight. And, and what do you put in the notes for that? You know, 4.6 hours, did something extraordinary, one landing. Uh, <laughs> OMG. <laughs> Actually, I'll read you what I put it in my book. I said uh, we were flying an aircraft uh, 623503. It was a 5.5. It was a crested cap mission. We took off at 734 Zulu. Uh, we had one sortie. It was an IFE of an F4 diverted into Gander. Took off again, 4.7 into England. One sortie. Period. Wow. That's my notes. I remember when we landed. Uh, what happened is when we came, when we got into. Uh, Gander, we had, correct me if I'm wrong, we had the wingman go in and put it down first. Clear the runway, uh, we've got a cripple that's coming in, let's get the good airframe on the ground so we don't have to worry about him. So the wingman went in, put it down, and he was out of the, out of the picture. The F-4 came in, he was short on hydraulics because he had one of two engines out, so he had half his hydraulics and they had given them a choice of going around and coming in into the wind yes. or tailwind. coming in as we were headed there and landing with a tailwind, which means that he'd have to land at a higher touchdown speed. He chose to land at the higher touchdown speed on a straight shot. He did not want to make the circle around the runway because he had weak hydraulics. Anyway, he put it on the ground. We finally came in and landed. We taxied in, the two, the two F4s are parked wingtip to wingtip. I come down the hatch first with the down locks and door locks because we're gonna put a squirt of fuel back onto the airplane so that we can take back off and head over to England. We had to catch up to the rest of the crew or the rest of the package. So I come down the ladder with the uh, down locks and door locks. Crafty's getting ready with the rest of the stuff and uh, he hands me down the stuff and I turn around and these four guys snapped the best salute to me. I mean, the Marines can't do it that good. And, you know, saluted them back with my hands full of down locks and door locks and I pressed onto with what I had to do. And then they brought in the air stair door and they cranked that up. And I can remember seeing those guys talking to Bob and Mike and, 
It's, it, it, it's amazing. You know, these guys, you know, we, we, we saved their life, and they didn't dawn on us at that time. What really dawned on us is we did our job. That was our job. Take care of the receiver. We did our job. Okay, let's get the airplane you know, repackaged, recranked. Let's go. We got another mission to go. We're already behind the power curve. Guess what? These four F4 crew guys, they're going to fly with us. They're going to be passengers. Cool. They got on board with us, and away we went to England. Well, when I mentioned that, um, I didn't realize we didn't do this every day. There was a moment. There was a moment when I did. Um, like he said, we, we just went on to, to finish our job. And so now my adrenaline is flowing like a river. And um, the only thing I'm thinking about is my engines. I'm thinking our engines are spent now. And all, all I want to do is you know, check the engine oil. And um, so I'm in hyper crew chief mode and uh, we throw the ladder down in case of engine oil in my toolbox. I run uh, over to number one engine where the uh, F4 is right off the wingtip. And, uh, and as I go by it, I can see all his engine oil over his entire epinage. It looked like a glazed donut. And uh, I knew his aircraft was in really poor shape. And I throw up the ladder, and I'm checking the engine oil, and at this point, our, our flight crew had assembled at the nose of the aircraft. And uh, they start walking over towards the F4. And all 22 passengers were in the opening of the cargo door uh, that was open and the safety net was up. And they started hooping and hollering like Top Gun, uh, you know, Tom Cruise just came back from a dogfight. And, uh, and then, then it hit me, you know, like a ton of bricks. I look at them and I see my crew approaching the F4 and, it, and, and realization hit me and, and I knew, yeah, it was really close. Um, yeah, so that, that put a whole new feel on the perspective on, on, on the mission uh, for me right then, yeah. You're going to see out there right now, uh, KC-135, you're going to see the R model, you know, the big engine, the C-56 yeah. engine on it. We were the A model, the J-57 engine. <laughs> not real, not real thrust sufficient, really not very effective, you know. So it, it was an interesting, I said, by the grace of God, all air crews survived, and we lived to tell the story, which is amazing. We lived to survive, yes. At this moment, I'd like to call to everybody's attention that the pilot on this aircraft is deceased. His name was Bob Goodman, Robert Goodman. His wife is going to be here later on today, and she's going to be at the Theater of the Woods tonight. Uh, Mrs. Goodman uh, is gracing us with her presence later today. And also, somebody else who's not here is uh, Wojo, uh, Carol Wojciechowski. I think I pronounced it right. He was a navigator. Uh, he's dead as well, so uh, keep giving your thoughts. Yeah. You, 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 can, visit, uh, you, you can visit Wojo. Uh, he is uh, buried and interned at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, so he's there. Uh, earlier in the show, you read uh, a portion of a citation for the award. Could you tell us a bit about uh, the award uh, that you were given? The award ceremony, you know, I brought the plaque. Uh, each one of uh, the tanker crew members received the plaque from the United States Air Force Chief of Staff who gave it to us at the Pentagon. And really, they, they brought us like here, like EAA. They, they ushered us into the Pentagon. They showed us around, gave us a grand tour. Uh, if you look on YouTube, I believe there's a uh, running video of the actual presentation on, on YouTube. But we were all given this award 
and then we're, we're sent back to Loring to, to live long and prosper and to do other things. And it, it, it's amazing that, uh, you know, the air crew is, is uh, recognized, but I, I have to call your attention to the other half of the team, you know, if we're the second team in tankers, guess who's the third team is? The maintainers. We're not going anywhere without these guys. So my hat's off to these guys. Our airplane is not airworthy. It's not ready to fly unless these guys do their job. So you can see, it, everybody has to do their job. If you do your job, the mission gets done and we, we have success. So, you know, my hat's off to the maintainers. Speaking of uh, Mrs. Goodman, um, I've talked to her on several occasions. And she let me know that her husband, Bob Goodman, our pilot, had us uh, did some public speaking uh, about this event to uh, different military uh, groups and such. And um, she let me know of a uh, uh, thing that he would always bring up. Uh, he would quote Winston Churchill, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase uh, really poorly, but um, it, it goes something like, um, there comes a time in every man's life where, where he's figuratively tapped on his shoulder to do something specific to his skills and training. And wouldn't it be a shame when that individual found himself ill-prepared to do that job? Yeah, you, 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 um, you asked us, you know, really the, the rest of the story was we landed in England, we spent a couple a couple of days there, whatever, a week or so in England, and then we spent a majority of our TDY, we went to Spain. So we were in Spain for a long time, for probably close to a month, and then we returned back to the States. So really, when we landed in England, we were told, hey, somebody from the Stars and Stripes wanted to talk to you guys. Oh my God, I just got off the airplane. You want to what? Okay, yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? Yeah, we did our job. Great, super. And we didn't know anything of all this stuff was, was transpiring while we were overseas. None of it till we got back to the States. Then all of a sudden we start getting the recognition. It's like, wow, this is something amazing. Like I said, it didn't dawn on us because this is our job. Our job is to do this, is to fly, air refuel, maintain jets. That's our job. You know, we did what we're supposed to do. Uh, and, and what a shining example of, uh, of the attitude that, that pervades uh, our veterans and our active service people. You know that this is the job that they have to do and they just do it. Uh, when we were talking about the crew, the passengers, this whole concept of uh, never entering anyone's mind that, well, we've got, what, maybe somewhere near 30 people on this KC-135, and there's two guys over there, it's, it, you know, no, you weren't thinking even once that, about this being a trade-off. As you said, uh, you did your jobs, and, and there's no way that, uh, that the rest of us can express how grateful we are uh, that, that men like you, that, that you, servicemen and women, do those jobs. Uh, we wouldn't be up here sitting at this table on this beautiful day being able to talk about it if you hadn't. You're very welcome. I remember hearing on the interphones two different comments at two different uh, points along this whole event. I remember when I heard, go get them. And I remember when I heard, I don't know if it was, Bob, Bob Goodman was flying the airplane. That was his concentration. Doug, Doug was on the, on the boom. 
I'm not sure how the tasks were divvied up between Mike and Wojo, but they were the primary guys taking care of the radios, talking to Gander, talking to the aircraft package, or the, 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 the task force commander, and all these other people. But I do remember it dawned on me at a, at a higher level of intensity when I heard them say, SAR has been launched. SAR is an acronym for search and rescue. And we were a long ways from Gander. I say, you know, we were flying an A model 135, and at that time, we didn't have all the modern radios, so we, we would fight over who was going to listen to HF and talk to, to Oceanic, because it was like, <laughs> that's what you would hear the entire time, and trying to listen and make sure you got the right uh, party on the line that you're talking to, so it, it makes for an interesting flight across the ocean, at least in those days. Now, now in today's modern Air Force, we've probably got a little bit of radios that they're not having to listen to that stuff. I guess one question I had was uh, when you guys got, um, well, when you got back to Gander and we got to England, um, what condition was the plane in? Uh, like, was, was the 135, I'm sorry, yeah. So, uh, I mean, was that brand new boom pretty much wrecked or uh, were, was it still serviceable? Well, that boom pretty much got me kicked out of England. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, got to, we finally got to uh, Mildenhall, Air Force Base, and the next morning, uh, the flight chief is divvying up all the assignments, and he says to Mike and I, so you guys are doing this big inspection, uh, what do you need? And I said, well, I need a new boom, I need this, <laughs> that, this. I gave him a, a short list of the equipment and specialists we needed. After the a brute force disconnect, and we had two, um, the boom needs to be inspected regardless. But we knew it was beyond that, and, and needed a new boom. But I gave him the list of everything we needed, and uh, he says, "Okay, I'll get it to you. Get out there." So him and I went out to the aircraft and did our complete inspection, everything that we could do without anything, any of the items that I had requested. No support equipment, no support uh, departments at all, and no boom or even fuel. Well, I was a smoker at the time, and uh, we had finished the day, and I went out to the center line, the taxiway, which was the only place you could smoke near the aircraft, and as White Top comes by, the uh, operations commander, a full bird colonel, pulls up the blue blue uh, sedan with the White Top and a little beanie on top, and uh, I salute him, and uh, he goes, uh, how you guys doing? Uh, you were the ones on that big mission last night with the F-4, and I said, yes, sir, and he explains, he goes, all my years in the service, I've never heard anything like that, we're proud to have you on our base. Um, how's it going today? And I said, oh, great. I said, we're as far along with this inspection as we can be without, and I listed everything again. <laughs> and he goes, did you ask for that? Yes, sir, first thing this morning. He says, well, keep up the good work, and, and we'll, we'll be seeing more of you. And he, the tail lights didn't get over the hump, and zing, 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 I got two of everything in my aircraft, and <laughs> they were all over it, like ants on a raisinette. And, uh, and um, then this flight chief comes out, and he's nose to nose with me, like a scene from, uh, Full metal jacket, you know, who the heck are you? Well, I didn't, it wasn't heck, but who the heck are you to say that we do sloppy maintenance and blah, 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 blah. Oh, he was just ripping me up and down, but I didn't care. I'm, I'm smiling through the whole thing over my shoulder. Everybody's on my aircraft doing their thing. This guy was kind of known as the intimidator on the base. I mean, uh, when I was first told that I had to work with him, I was a little apprehensive, but we get along fine. And um, while the guy is still yelling at me, veins coming out of his neck, he walks up and says, did you do this? I go, yeah. He goes, all right. 
<laughs> right in front of the guy, and he walks away, and I let the guy finish, and you know, and um, it was, uh, so he said to me, in, while he was yelling, you're never gonna come back to England again. Okay, so I didn't care. We finished our five days there, went to Spain for 35-ish, back to England for two days, and while we were there, the next morning, he says, what do you need? I said, fuel, fuel, okay, go. And he, he never said two words to me the whole time. <laughs> Finished two days and he went back to, to Loring Air Force Base. And uh, the next morning I was working on my actual aircraft again. The expediter came down, pulls up in the truck and says, flight chief wants to see you. Okay, great. So I went up to the office and he says, listen, we can't tell you how proud we are. You guys put us on the map. But uh, you're never going back to England. <laughs> oh my God. So, I did get kicked out of England. But uh, I, I would just like to add about um, the, the flight crew doing, we, had a, we weren't trained to do this. Um, we weren't trained to do this. We, we made it up as we went along. Typically, uh, in a refuel, we're at altitude, at speed, and the fighter will approach us. We didn't have that option in, in this event. So um, the, we are actually doing everything backwards, right? So we're doing it in a, in a uh, descent and we have to back up to him. And the communication from the boom operator was just phenomenal to Bob Goodman, the pilot, giving him direction to slow down three knots, slow down three knots. He, he directed the tanker backwards to, to make this contact possible. Uh, the fighter couldn't go any faster. We couldn't go any slower, but they, they found a way. And um, so to, to perform that with the skill and precision that they did was... Uh, a benchmark in my book and um, just it, it, it proved to you uh, again learned a million lessons you do what it takes you know if you have to do your operation backwards you do it backwards so you get it done I think that willingness to to improvise coupled with uh, this unwavering sense of mission you know we're going to do this we're going to do this and you train and train and train and there's very rigid specifications this is how we do these things uh, but then things hit the fan and you had to improvise, you had to make it up as you went along. And there's something about that combination of this, this uh, rigidity of training and then the total flexibility to do whatever it took to get that airplane there. You're talking about using the boom to move the airplane. Uh, that has to be like the first thing they teach you not to do in boom operator school. You don't stick the boom back there and slap the other well, well, in essence, you, you are correct. Uh, sometimes you get what we call cowboys or yahoos back there behind us, usually the fighter aircraft. And the boom operator, once they latch on, he can say, okay, buddy, I'm going to put you where you need to be. And he'll move him over where he needs to be. They say, that's the position you need to be in. So you do have that. But you hit on the word flexibility. And flexibility is key in flying large airplanes. You're here. Another, another point that I'd like to add is something that I just learned recently. At the beginning of this meeting, Mike had said, we were the right crew at the right place at the right time or something to that effect. Something that I just learned was that Bob Goodman in his younger years, he had experience as a tow aircraft pilot. He, he was the pilot of an aircraft that would tow gliders up into the sky and he'd, he'd release them. And somehow that kind of thought process of how do I tow aircraft 
from little single engine Cessnas or whatever used to be in, used to towing gliders, he was able to extrapolate that into what do I have to do to be a tow aircraft pilot to get a crippled F-4 up out of the waves. You know, along the line, I had heard them, I had heard the comment about we leveled off on a second connect, we had leveled off at 1600 feet. 1600 feet above the, the water. I can remember spending a, a few moments in the boom pod with Doug where I could look down there and I could see the, the waves, the trough, the crest, the trough, the crest. You know, you could see individual waves. We were way outside the envelope. But my point is, Mike made the comment we were the right crew at the right time at the right place. Well, Bob Goodman, rest in peace, I believe was the right guy to have in the left seat to make this thing happen because he had experience as a tow aircraft pilot. That is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, we're definitely getting up uh, against the clock, so one final question for the three of you. Um, how long were you in Milden Hall before any of you had to pay for a beer? <laughs> Please tell me that, uh, that you didn't have to. All right. Um, <laughs> All right, so we, we, we get to the NCO club real quick. I'll try to make it quick. Oh, and, uh, I'm not going to regret this. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, and the bar was packed and three people deep the length of the bar. And um, uh, a table just opened up and Mike says grab it, so there's a little two-topper. And so uh, I, he, he wasn't drinking, so I got him a Coke and I had a JD and Coke. Just, that was the only one I, I bought. And, um, and then uh, right then the DJ puts down a record and she goes, this goes to, to uh, flight 3501 and she plays uh, Smoke on the Water. And, and uh, so I said to Mike, hey, this is for us. And the guy who was at the bar right behind me, he turns around and he says, what are you talking about? I go, we're the crew chiefs. He turns to the bar and announces, these are the guys. <laughs> and um, the table filled up with JD and Cokes and, and he was only drinking Coke, so it was pretty good. But, uh, so that... he's the one who remembers the rest of the night. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, first, for being here, for joining us, sharing the story, coming to Oshkosh. Uh, what a privilege it is uh, for, for EA to be able to host this reunion. Uh, we're so excited to be able to welcome hear you here tonight. Uh, far more importantly than that, it's our privilege to thank you for your service. Uh, we cannot express uh, enough how much, uh, how much that means to us. I want to put a, a big thank you and a shout out Chris. to Chris right. Henry. Here, here. He's the guy that made this happen. He, uh, he has yeah, a tendency yeah. to do that. Well, thank you guys. I, I'm just honored to, to be in the presence of you guys. You guys are amazing. And uh, I'm a fan of tankers. So that's why I keep saying that we don't kick butt without tanker gas. <laughs> you can go home and Google it. You can find the real uh, phrase. But uh, pretty but easy to figure I, out. I can't thank you guys enough and your wives in the front row here for traveling all the way from the East Coast and, and all kind of parts abroad to be here in Oshkosh with us. Round of applause for them, too. All right. Well, thanks again to our guests. Thanks so much to the live audience for being here for this recording, another, uh, another experiment for us, doing a live, for a live recorded episode. Thanks to everybody out there listening. Thanks to those of you who write the reviews, who give us the feedback, uh, sending their notes to feedback at EAA.org, commenting on our blog posts at expire.ea.org. Special thanks to GE Aviation 
my friend Nick out here in the audience representing them, our sponsors, keeping this thing going, keeping this thing alive. And with that, is everybody ready? We'll see you next time when you're cleared to land. On the green dot. Perfect. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much.